Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording from our Passover prep learning series. I'm going to say a couple of things to get us started. The first one is just to share gratitude um, to this group and to the work that One LA does in and around our institution. Um, I, you know, I've worked closely sort of in different capacities with a few of you, um, and I continue to see both the direct fruits of the work that One LA does in and around Beth Am and also deeply appreciative of the community organizing framework. Um, that we're able to sustain within our community, I believe, very deeply, not only in a, a number of the causes that One LA has advanced within TBA, but also just in terms of the general model of it. And so I'm very grateful for that. Um, I won't be able to stay for the full time this evening, but I'm glad to be able to join you for some of it. Um, you know, I, I shared with some folks on this uh, Zoom, you know, hey, I think I'll be able to make it. And uh, Paula, of course, you know, gave me some information about, you know, what we'd be talking about this evening and, you know, just reviving the sort of always important idea of caring for the stranger, right? Like we are, we are in Passover prep. It feels weird to say that. Does it feel weird to anyone else to say Passover prep? I feel like it's coming real quick on the heels of Purim. We talk about it every year because we need the reminder, right, that we should remember the stranger because we were strangers in the land of Egypt. We say, although I was reading a little bit about this before hopping on, we say that it's in the Torah 36 times. It's actually more, but we'll say 36 because it goes well with this next piece, which is that 30, right? 18 times two is 36. And in Judaism, we talk about 18 as chai, 18 as, as life, right? So what is at stake in caring for the stranger? It is the life of the stranger that is at stake, and it is also our own lives, our own souls that are at stake when we think about caring for those who are in need, um, because it is it is something that impacts everyone who is involved. But I was thinking about that a little bit more, and though the Passover framework is lovely, there's a piece to that that feels tricky, which is that in some ways that is also othering right? By using the descriptor of the stranger, that implies the other. And people who are experiencing mental health challenges and people who are experiencing homelessness are not other. They are a part of our community. It is not just people who are outside of our community who are experiencing those challenges. There are people who are very much within our community who are experiencing those challenges. And if we are conceptualizing of them as a stranger, or even worse, if they are experiencing themselves as being othered because they are experiencing those challenges, then that is on us to address and ameliorate as quickly as possible. Um, there was recently a study um, that came out, the Federation in New York, Jewish Federation in New York, did some very, very extensive research and the Jewish community in New York, they found that 23% of Jews in their study were experiencing, were living in poverty or near the poverty line. Um, and that 13% of Jews in the community could not consistently pay their usual household bills. Um, they found that, um, between people who are behind on rent uh, or mortgage, 
um, that that was about 10% of the population. And from a mental health perspective, they found that 21% of people were experiencing anxiety or depression. Now, we aren't in New York, and I know there are differences between New York and Los Angeles, but there aren't that many differences between New York or Los Angeles. And I would strongly suspect that similar percentages of Jews in Los Angeles are experiencing um, challenges very much in line with those. I'm going to say one and a half more things. Tikkun Olam doesn't always mean what we think it means. Tikkun Olam, like all Jewish concepts, has a rich and diverse history in terms of what it has meant over the course of uh, the Jewish tradition. Usually when we say Tikkun Olam, we mean social action, right? Healing the world. One of the main ways it um, gained prominence was uh, coming out of the Lurianic school of mysticism, uh, Rabbi Isaac Luria, who told the tale of creation as that light was poured into vessels um, to make creation happen and the vessels could not hold the light. And so the vessels shattered into millions and millions of pieces. And those shards, those little pieces, are pieces of godliness that are embedded within each and every single thing on this planet, including and especially people. And so the work of Tikkun Olam isn't just about doing nice things for people because it's good and important to do nice things for people, though it certainly is. The work of Tikkun Olam is actually about discovering the godliness within each and every single person and finding a way to elevate that and bring it to closer to its ultimate source. And I think that work of Tikkun Olam is really what we're talking about here, is finding the spark of godliness and divinity within each and every single person and finding a way to help it shine through as brightly and fully as possible. The last little thing I'll say is that um, walking around LA, reading the news, um, speaking for myself, it is easy to feel kind of discouraged and a little bit disheartened at this incredibly um, fraught, substantial, to say the least, challenge that we face in our city and in our county. And at the same time, for all of the challenges and struggles of the past two years, we have also seen that when there is political will and when there is enough energy and urgency put behind a challenge, huge structures and systems and initiatives can happen with rapidity and with substance to shift seemingly intractable issues. And that doesn't happen automatically. And it gives me some hope and it gives me some faith. And it's through this kind of work, through relationship building, through deep listening, through concerted, consistent, ongoing effort that meaningful change can happen. So that's probably more than you wanted me to say, but you did say you wanted a rabbi here. So I'm sorry for going slightly over time, <laughs> but I will say, first of all, it's not really over time. It's rabbi time. Second of all, just echoing again, my deep gratitude to this group and for all who are connected to it for your ongoing and really deeply meaningful efforts to address these pressing and vital um, issues, not outside of, but within our community. So thank you. And thank you, Rabbi Shapiro, for your very meaningful words. And I want to thank all of you for giving us the time to listen today. We're members of the 1LA core team of Temple Beth Am. Wave core team members, so we know who you are. <laughs> Great. 
Okay, 1LA is a broad-based organization made up of dues-paying members from religious congregations, like churches and synagogues, schools, and nonprofits across LA County who shape the organization's agenda and teach our constituents how to be effective public people. It's been a long time since I had civics in high school. This is really important. So Temple Beth Am is a dues-paying member. And tonight, we're sharing what 1LA leaders have learned about both housing insecurity and mental health from many experts. You'll hear later how we do this. Now, we don't claim to be experts in either area, but what we do have is the experience of everyday citizens. We call this metis. Have you ever been in a situation where decisions are made by people with power, but They never did ask the people experiencing the issue. We work to change that narrative. And I have the next slide. This political cartoon says it all to me. Housing insecurity is a very complex problem. It cannot be fixed all at once, since there are so many reasons for people losing shelter. And you can see that mental health in this picture is only one of the many reasons. 1LA chose to bite off one part of the problem to find an issue that we could work on. Next slide. Here's what we propose to do tonight. You'll see we're going to share what 1LA has learned in the context of political thought. So why are things the way they are? Who makes the decisions? Where does the money come from? And we'll have time to share our experience and reactions, and then we're going to propose an action and have time for questions. So we ready to begin? I'm going to hand this over to Marlies Backrack to share some definition, definitions to make things clearer. Thank you, Nancy. So starting with some uh, 1LAIF terms, um, one of the first one is house meeting, which is where members of an institution get together to discuss um, issues um, and how those issues are impacting them and tell, share stories. Um, and the goal is to um, help us focus on the most relevant issues um, and deciding what we're going to focus on. Um, Research action is where we meet with key public officials, as as well as officials from private institutions, and um, try to understand better um, about um, the issues that we're trying to learn about and what kind of strategies are being used. A civic academy, like this one, is where we present what we've learned at both house meetings and research actions, and um, like... uh, as um, tonight, you'll we'll be including a house house meeting as part of it. That's often part of a civic academy, and an accountability action is where we meet with public officials to share our own stories, our own agenda, and ask them to partner with us if they're willing to work with us on these issues. And there will be actually an um, accountability action upcoming on May fifteenth that you'll hear more about later. Um, There are a lot of terms um, about this issue, uh, housing insecurity, homelessness, unhoused, unsheltered. And uh, homeless is not who someone is, not their identity, but rather the circumstances they're going to, going through. 
And someone can be experiencing homeless while sheltered, uh, perhaps living with a friend or um, in some type of transitional housing or unsheltered, you know, living out on the street or in their car, for example. Um, people living in shelters um, can be living in a congregate setting or a non-congregate setting where it's more private. And um, now I'm going to turn this over to Henry, who's going to speak more about what we've learned about the topic. Henry, I think you're muted. Thank you. I've been trying not to make any noise, and that was a good way to do it. Oops, just a sec. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, yeah. Thank you, Marlise. I wanted to start with this slide because I wanted to give you a concept of how big Los Angeles is. For those who haven't thought about it, we're over 10 million people. That's bigger than a lot of states. And this is a breakdown by ethnicity of how that population is organized. You'll notice that on the left, we've shown that there's a, almost 64,000 people, according to a recent um, Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority assessment that are experiencing homelessness and broken down by ethnicity for that, you can see down there I've shown you that um, the African-American community um, has over two and a half percent of their uh, group is experiencing homelessness. So this kind of gives you a feel for um, which ethnicities are being the most impacted across the county. Uh, as we said before, there's a lot of reasons um, for why people might be homeless. Um, poverty, not having enough money to pay for living expenses, um, discrimination of allowing people in, whether it's overt or not, um, lack of family ties, and the last two are substance abuse or mental health challenges and the lack of investment in mental health services. We'll talk about that more later. But again, uh, LAHSA, the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority, says that about 60% of LA's homeless population has cycled through the criminal justice system, which is um, pretty incredible. So some of the research actions that Marlisa referred to, we've we spent about we've looked at about 20 different research actions to prepare for this, and this is just a representative sample of a few. You can see we've dealt with uh, elected officials, um, other government officials, <coughs> government organizations, non-government organizations. Um, we've we've tried to really get a sense of you know who is dealing with it and in what way uh, as broadly as possible. And we wanted to point out that, sorry, get my notes here, um, that about one quarter of the people that are homeless um, have serious mental illness issues. Uh, three quarters do not. So these are two separate issues. We want to keep reiterating that. We're looking at the intersection of the two just because trying to bite off everything at once is, is going to be a challenge. And we saw there was some synergy that might be available with that. But in other words, we're not going to try to solve everything. We're trying to solve something that we think is a starting point. Um, but that's that's why these two things are being presented the way they are this evening. Um, and this is also important here. Often uh, people cycle in and out of hospitals and the justice system without being put on a sustainable path to recovery. 
Um, I wanted to point out here that there's simply not enough treatment beds at all the different levels uh, to help deal with this situation and expanding them is extremely difficult. Um, as we talked about, just acquiring the land is an issue, but there's also the institutions for mental disease have certain exclusions, which was also referred to about the 16 bed maximum and various other issues. Um, to give you a little bit better feel for the numbers on this, according to a 2019 study, we need about 50 beds per 100,000 residents in order to make this a sustainable effort. And we have less than half that. The population that requires services is generally considered fairly static. So our population has grown since 2019. So the demand for actual number of beds has grown, right? Um, readmission rates, another factor for how well is our, our service being provided. In LA County, the average 30-day readmission rate is almost 40%. Nationally, it's closer to 20%. Um, too many clients remain in hospitals due to lack of post-hospital beds and services. And therefore, the care, the, the care that they're getting is more expensive because hospital time and space is extremely expensive. And the kind of care they're getting is not really ideal because they should be moving on to other kinds of care in order to help them uh, deal with their situation. And then the last comment I wanted to make is that Medicare is a primary source of health insurance for more than 13 million people in California. That's California-wide, but it's a third of the state's population. It provides health coverage for children living in, um, living in families with low incomes, their parents, pregnant women, seniors, non elderly adults, including people with disabilities. And for seniors with low incomes, Medi-Cal also covers services not paid by Medicare, including nursing home care. So bottom line, what we've learned about homelessness is, right, um, over 66,000 people are homeless in LA County per the 2020 estimate. The main driver is the high cost of housing, high level of poverty and inequality. We need two types of housing, both transitional and permanent, both of which we don't have enough of. We're providing housing at a rate of about 207 people per day, which sounds like that's at least progress, but there's 227 estimated per day that are becoming homeless. So we're not even keeping up with the increasing number of people who are in that mode. There are nonprofits like West Valley Home Yes and No Home Alliance, both of which are members of 1LA, that are helping to gain trust through their outreach efforts in the homeless population. There's also many different government organizations involved in trying to solve the problem, as we talked about before. Um, and part of the problem is there's not a lot of coordination between them. And finally, the last thing I want to point out is that the federal voucher for permanent housing system, which includes emergency housing vouchers are not working in their current form because they're not being distributed well and they're not even sufficient really in the LA environment to do what they need to, to provide the housing. So what's common between them? Civic Academy is, this Civic Academy is, is dealing with both of the problems and the topics share a lot of common political causes and issues.
uh, housing first approach, a housing first approach is something that um, seems to be the best way to get people stabilized, both uh, for their mental health and of course, to help deal with the lack of housing. And as noted earlier, we're, um, there's more, we need a lot more mental health beds to be um, able to help service the people who are, are experiencing that particular problem. And now I'm gonna turn this over to Paula. So uh, the picture that you see is, can you hear me? So the picture you see is Temple Beth Om's uh, efforts to preserve affordable housing. There's a picture of Robertson Boulevard right by um, just south of the Walgreens. And there's a picture of a mock-up of a proposed hotel that um, was being proposed for that location on Robertson. A local developer wanted to build this hotel, it's Council District 5, but would also tear down those 12 rent-controlled apartment units. Uh, Temple Beth Am's core team organized a series of research actions to see what we could do to protect the housing. We were discouraged left and right from everybody we talked to. Um, but despite that, we persevered. We relied on, on Keith's help, our organizer assigned to TBA. And as a team, we figured out what our core principles were. One, we were not opposed to development, but we were clearly opposed to losing affordable housing units. We made decisions incrementally, tweaking what we did based on our meetings, both with the developer, elected officials, and other organizations. We were very clear on our strategy. It was to stop the loss of affordable housing in Council District 5, because there is so little affordable housing in this district. It has the lowest inventory of subsidized affordable housing in the city. We built on 1LA's pre-existing relationship with LA City Council member Paul Koretz, meeting directly with him and members of his staff to raise our concerns. Ultimately, the developer and the city would not commit to replacing the housing or finding alternative housing for the residents. We felt we had no choice, but we really did have a choice. We had a choice to act, and that's what we did. We chose to act. We opposed the development at the City Planning Commission hearing in November by sending a 1LA opposition letter and publicly commenting in during the public hearing, during the hearing. And remarkably, we were successful. The commissioners voted unanimously to deny the zoning change and permits needed for the project to go forward. As of yet, there's been no appeal filed, and I just sent an email today to find out the status of it with the city planner. In the process, we elevated and expanded 1LA's name recognition to new parts of the community, and Temple Beth Am's core team is cultivating relationships with new local institutions. We deepened our connections to each other, and significantly, it felt really good to act together to do something for the benefit of the community. Now, we would like to um, give everybody the opportunity for, um, to discuss and to react and to respond to what you've heard tonight so far. We'd like you to 
um, have a house meeting. I'd like you to um, house meetings are all about your personal experiences. We one of our only ground rules we have is we get to the leaders. We get to um, we ask you to consent to be interrupted. We don't want any one person to monopolize the conversation, and we'd like um, everybody to have an opportunity to talk. Um, and so when I'm breaking into two groups. Yes. Great. And so if the, we'll put the, the questions in the chat, but basically please react to what you've heard so far tonight and how you're feeling. And as Rabbi Matt said, there are no others here. This is us, right? And so what, what are, what is it that people have been experiencing? What are they, uh, what do you feel? Um, Thank you. All right. I have the breakout rooms built for Nancy. We'll go about 15 minutes. That sound right? Okay. I'm about to open up the rooms right now. And Ari, feel free to to jump into one if you wish. I'm I'm going to probably bounce between the two different uh, rooms. I'll probably bounce also. I'm just uh, taking care of kids right now. Oh, okay. Gotcha. All right. <laughs> Thanks. Huh? Oh, really? Okay. Um, it's all, <laughs> it's all about you and us. So, does anyone have something that they would anyone like to start to share? Oh, I'm willing to. <laughs> okay. Um, Diane and then Denise. Right. So, as you know, I spend a lot of time um, making kits for uh, the homeless, usually around Purim time. And we try also do it in December through the Giving Spirit. And then I go with some people downtown and have the opportunity to really be with the homeless. And I think it would be so good if more people were able to do that not just to see it more as an intellectual kind of thing or academic type of thing. And we've just met such wonderful people when we go downtown and um, we can never have enough bags. There are just so many people there and um, we start to give them out and some of them are used to us coming down and then, I don't know, the word gets out and they all start to come around and, Eventually, we do run out of bags, but they're so appreciative of what we give them, and they bless us many times over. And it was very moving this past time, because uh, I go with some friends from B'nai David Judea. A dad came with his seven-year-old daughter, who was dressed in her Queen Esther costume. And he wanted her to know the experience, not just to make a kit, but to give it out and to know these people. And, you know, she found, I mean, they were wonderful to her. Oftentimes, I know people are afraid of the homeless and they think that they're going to, you know, do something outrageous. But I have to say, in the years that I've gone downtown, I haven't had that experience. And um, I just think it's very rewarding to go and speak with these individuals and uh, encourage everyone to try and do the same. Thank you. Denise? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't want to say anything. <laughs> okay, I, I can be very honest. Um, 
because my experiences are always just walking down Pico Boulevard. Oh, yes. <laughs> the post office, just past La Cienega. And there are usually people who I pretty much can guess are uh, not sheltered, um, and many of whom have some mental health issues. And so on the one hand, um, it makes me very sad that this many people in our city don't have a place to live and aren't receiving the services that they really and truly need that could be helping them. And on the other hand, as I was walking the other day, right, a few months ago, um, someone out there was very violent. And I crossed the street because it was scary. Um, so while at the same time it can be, you know, I can feel deep compassion and want to fix this issue, um, you know, there, there is definitely that element of, you know, some fear as well. Okay. Yeah. And <laughs> now that okay, I can are you ready? Yes. Now, <laughs> yeah, because um, cause Diane is so gracious and brave and I'm not um, – but I have a very similar experience to Nancy, like every day. Um, I live near the Grove and, you know, a couple days ago I was walking to get my nails done and um, there's some woman kind of strewn out in front of the Writers Guild and she's like surrounded by a pile of garbage and she's screaming and throwing things. And, and I ran into the street, like I literally felt safer running into traffic in rush hour than walking by. Um, and then walking home, there was a couple of people asleep on the corner in front of Trader Joe's by the bus stop. Today, at an abandoned flower shop a block west of Trader Joe's, there's a woman with, like, no clothes, scrubbing herself, but also with garbage strewn around. Like, this is not okay. You know, it's there's one thing is compassion, and we can have compassion all day long, Um but that doesn't make it okay for people to be sitting around hallucinating, surrounded by garbage in the middle of the street. Like I, I just don't feel okay with that, you know? Thank and I, I feel like it, it's just really not okay. You know, even on Shabbat afternoon, I was walking to a class and um, there was some guy, I saw him coming towards me, like maybe a, a few blocks. My vision's not great. So he was like maybe a block, block and a half away. And he had, like, these kind of pants with, like, all kinds of things flying off the sides. And he's got this, like, walk. And I thought, you know, it's so L.A. You can't tell. You literally can't tell if someone's just nuts or fashionable. Like, you can't tell. But he was in group A. And he started following me. And then so I ran into a plant store. And then I left. And and then, like, a few blocks later, I had to turn to go to my shear. And all of a sudden, he pops out of the alley. I'm like, ah. So I ran back. And then I found some nice strangers and, and then, and, but he saw that I was afraid and he started like chasing me and making noises and going, like, and, I mean, it was terrifying that Shabbat, I have no cell phone. I have no nothing, you know, I don't know. It's just, it's very scary. And this is like just my experiences in three days. Thank you for sharing how much more need to work on providing those services and issues, right? I think providing the services, a thousand percent. And um, I spend not a lot of time, but a fair amount of time in Europe. And this doesn't happen. And 
like biology doesn't change, right? Like mental illness and the processes that go on biologically, they don't change when you cross the border. And the process of addiction doesn't change when you cross the border. Um, but there are certain things that, you know, so they have like a lot of supportive housing and things like this. Um, but they also have rules like that. You cannot just strewn out yourself with a bunch of garbage in London. Or in, it's just not going to happen. Like it's not going to happen. And, and you can't vomit and you can't shit on the sidewalk. You cannot do those things. And here you can. And the thing is that when there's no self-control required, like, I think I feel like self-control is an important tool for wellness. When, when something is required of people that they have to tap into, even if it's this much left inside that's functional, that helps them, you know, and what, what we're doing is not helping. Thank you. Anybody else? Um, so I obviously living in LA, I'm aware of all these problems and would like to help solve them. My um, experience with them actually is through some of my volunteer work at Santa Monica UCLA Hospital, where sometimes those homeless people um, are being served by palliative team care uh, care team that I work with. Um, and uh, you know, I know a lot of stories about how. You know, one one gentleman would just a woman actually this would, would just ride the bus all night long every night to be, and um, and they do serve them, um, you know, and sometimes they're on on hospice in the hospital, and I just go and hold their hands and sing to them or whatever. So I, I mean, I'm not helping the homeless problem, but there are people that are in different ways. I also um, know someone whose brother is mentally ill and has been from schizophrenic and he, when he's on medication is fine um, and then they start to not take it and they get unfine and he ends up in in jail and then they get him settled again and then he's not and he has a place to live his parents have left him um, financially you know think and it's still it's still a problem so um, I, I don't have any answers but I'm Tyson do you have a reaction to what you've heard tonight? In the presentation, yeah, I mean, or I, your experiences. I mean, I've had the same kind of experiences as, as Diane. You know, handing out the the bags. And I take my daughters usually, or one of them at least, to, to do that, and it's usually been positive. They're appreciative, and and they're usually very gracious about it. And they, you know, they'll call over their friends to you know um, get one also. So so there's um, you know I've had that, and I've also had the the bad ones where someone's freaking out or 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 whatever. Um, and it's, I, I think the ones who are so gracious, it's just like living on the streets has to be really hard. And, you know, this whole mental illness thing, I mean, right. There's probably some that are homeless because they're, they're mentally ill. There's probably some that are mentally ill because they're homeless. And it's just like, so traumatic to, to like, like, you know, if you can imagine living on the street and not having, you know, access to food and whatever like yeah, that you have to figure like just kind of live by your wits and try to get food and, and never know like what's coming i mean that, that does like talk about right the chemistry of the brain that does stuff to your brain um and so i, I thought what what the i think it was henry maybe that that said the the housing first i think was was the term i think that makes a lot of sense that you, can, you, you can't just be giving them treatment while they're on the streets and expect them to become you know like in control and you know fully functioning you kind of have to get them into a stable situation first 
Um, and then, but then that's not gonna be enough. You're gonna need to have, you know, other services as well, because they do some of them, right? They're just gonna go back and be wackos on the street again if if you just get them at home and you don't do anything else for them. Um, so I, I think that, you know, just definitely us handing out survival kits is certainly a band-aid, but it's not gonna solve the problem. And so doing this kind of thing where you're trying to kind of get the root causes and policy and and uh, you know um, saving housing that's there, you know, affordable housing that's there and, and getting more affordable housing. Um, there's there's that meeting that Henry sent an email about uh, on Thursday, I think it was, or, uh, of uh, on Pico, which I think is terrific. Um, some affordable housing on Pico, and uh, what was I going to say? Um, I think I think that's like you know things like that are 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 where we need to go. Just getting more and more housing, and especially housing with the supportive services wrapped around it, and people have to be okay with it. Like, like the, those of us who like that kind of thing, we have to go to those meetings also. It can't just be the NIMBYs. They're going to the meetings and saying, <laughs> I don't want it. Or, you know, the people who are like, yeah, I want to have more affordable housing. It's either that or have them on the streets, right? Like those are your options really. Mm-hmm. Um, so you might as well have nice housing for them to go into. So I have, I have a question about that. So, you know, there's all these, every time there's an election or there's um, propositions and we pass things and um and then they get upset with the elected officials. And I'm just curious about what it is that st- I'm, I, I can't believe that all the officials just say all those words and don't mean it. So I don't understand what is, other than the people who don't want the housing near them, um, what is stopping, stopping this from happening? And, and I don't know that any of you have the answer. I actually, one of the reasons is because it's so expensive for them to, to build it. When you see like the per, you know, per unit cost, it's ridiculous. Like you'd think that they're getting like a swing floor or something with, with, you know, the cost of it. And some of that is because of some very well-meaning like environmental rules that makes it extremely expensive to build things. So they might have to figure out something that's, um, you know, more than just bonds to to figure out ways to whatever, you know, cut some red tape to, to be able to build these things faster and cheaper. The last um, research action that that was on that list was um, time was the uh, uh, I forget what his organization's called, but they build tiny homes. Tiny. They've built them in the oh, valley. Mm-hmm. There's a group of tiny homes cost so much less to do this, and they make like a community, and they have the services there that they provide. You know, just as if you were in, uh, you know, a Supportive housing, because it is supportive housing. Um, and he's looking to build another set of tiny homes in other places. Yeah, exactly. Now, a- across like, the street from where the guy was going to build the hotel, it ugh, <laughs> they are building um, a very tall building, but it is going to have... Uh, some affordable housing in it. So like okay. where the where the yogurt story, I don't know if you know, but where Milky's yogurt story used to be, that's going mm-hmm. to be a seven-story building with affordable well, housing. Diane and I went to a, a multi-story building a couple of years ago on Arlington Square and it was beautiful. But they oh, had I went this, too. Okay. And then there was that, remember that empty parking lot? Because they still have a rule that you have to have a parking spot for every, and that adds like whatever, $50,000 to the cost of the unit. And people, these people have no cars. Don't have cars. It was like empty. So like they really have to change the rules, not just dedicate money, but have to change the rules to get more bang for the buck. So yeah. more housing can get built. Right. Wow. 
Absolutely. Well, these research actions are just fascinating. I've gone to quite a few of them, you know, mm. and uh, it, you really kind of get behind the scenes. Dadushka's in the house. So, Paula, you want to um, check in and see if there's anybody who has some thoughts? Uh, Paula, you're muted. Um, I was wondering if anybody had something that they hadn't heard of before or learned before or was notable for them that they wanted to share. I just went on. I just never knew that when it's cold out there, you would assume that people need, need, need shelter. But what Mark was telling us is that in New York, every, um, every, the, many of the churches and temples actually will have people when it's freezing outside, will have them stay in their, in their sanctuaries with, with some, some security. But I, that was fascinating for me. Anybody else? Bonnie, did you want to share anything? I can't hear you, Bonnie. You're still muted. There. Do you want to know what my reactions were? Well, I mean, I'm just on the same page as everybody else and would, would like to find a, a solution. We talked about uh, tiny homes. We talked about trying to convince people that we are all people and that we we all have to live together. We can't have, you know, $3 million homes and people without any place to live at all. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense to me. And, uh, yeah, thank you. I wish I could help more. Well, you're here tonight, and don't worry, we'll ask you to do more. <laughs> um, I wanted to introduce uh, Gary Backrack, building on what we've learned. Uh, Gary will discuss, based on all the House meetings, uh, what LA needs to do to address these issues of mental health and homelessness, the intersection of those. Gary. Okay, thank you, Paula. Um, yeah, as, as they mentioned, I'm going to talk about mental health and, um, and homelessness. What does LA need? What does the city need to do? And um, what, uh, breaking it up to sections, what LA really needs is more mental health beds. And what are mental health beds? There's really three types. One is beds in actually in the hospital. Two is subacute facilities where the people are locked up they're substance abuse users and they need to, need to be safe. And the third one is residential unlocked boarding care facilities. Um, but there's a problem. What is the problem? They're not cheap. They, need, they, they have substantial cost to build these facilities. You need land. You also need approval for overnight permits. How many, how many people want a mental health facility next to their, next to their house? Um, state and local um, State and local um, agency need to, need to provide licenses. There needs to be funding. These are, as I mentioned, they're not cheap, ongoing operations. And you need staff. And um, next slide, please. Um, you also need a lot of mental health professionals. It's, you know, it's a real skill to handle somebody that has, has mental problems. And um, you need the people that will handle, you know, mental health. The people that are homeless or people that are variety of which is good or bad a variety of ethnicities and and uh, um, ages and everything else you need people who can deal with that and um, and you need a streamline there's a lot of streamlining to, to fix things that so that little for an example you cannot have a med, you cannot have a Medicare facility for, for uh, mental health problems um, if it has more than 16 beds why not have you know those that's a, that's a political issue that needs to get resolved Next slide, please. Um, 
again, what, dealing with this homelessness, what does LA need is more beds, more housing. Um, the problem is, is that since there's not a much housing and the supply and demand issues, you, the, the housing is just so expensive. There has not been much building for the last 30, 40 years. And, um, and if you have housing, well, there are different types of housing. You have interim housing, which is um, for short-term purposes. And then also you have long-term housing, which is basically you can have subsidies in these housings to allow people who can't afford the normal rent or you can get housing vouchers or um, you can have housing with support services. It just goes on, but there's a lot of ways to allow people to be in homes and off the street um, if, if the society helps. And, um, and one more slide, please. Um, another thing is LA needs effective public sector um, work. Government, there's so many government failures. I mean, we have these million dollar units being built right now for the for homeless. And it, that's not, not the best way to do that. And maybe there's a better way to, to build them cheaper. Those, that's a housing, that's a government failure. We need to understand how to get the bureaucracy working better. Um, and um, and there's there's little 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 things like the, the psychiatrists at the, the bureau at the Department of Mental Health um, have have, have caseloads case of 400 patients or more. Maybe that's too many. Maybe we need, they need to fund more psychiatrists from um, government fostered, government sponsored or outside psychiatrists who can help this problem. And um, I'd like to forward back to Paula for the final one. So speaking of effective public sectors, um, who who has the power to make government accountable to deliver the change that we've, we see that we need? We've learned so much about what the problems are and the seriousness of them. And we know that there are challenges, but we also know there have been solutions. All the House meetings have indicated what you can do, and there's some of them are in the works and change is possible, especially on the eve of the election. But um, it's really clear no single government entity has the power to effectively coordinate all of the mental health or mental health treatment and the housing across LA County. The county itself has 88 cities and five supervisory districts. And in the city of LA, we have the mayor and 15 council districts. Sometimes these council districts, next slide, are defined as fiefdoms because the council member can do essentially whatever he or she wants to do within their district and the other district, the other council district members um, don't stop them. And we saw this in uh, the pandemic where the city council controlled most of the emergency pandemic funding for housing. And this didn't funnel that money into LASA. Each city council, they just passed this new ordinance where every each city council member can decide where they want to ban homeless account, encampments in their district, not what works for the entire city, but what works for my district. And so you see this map here. This, these are the council districts. These are the 88 incorporated cities in, in, and towns. And there's unincorporated areas in Los Angeles County as well, and the supervisorial districts. So we're, we have this mishmash of local government, and there's no one who is working all together. And even the most, most recent egregious example was 
there's a county, LA County came out with a, um, a recommendation for a homelessness czar, but the city of LA declined to even participate in this commission to study homelessness. Next slide. So Rabbi Matt said, energy and will, we can accomplish things. What we see now is supervisors and the city council um, districts are dividing up money and power. They're each taking care of their own district. And these local, these like micro solutions for each district never address this regional or citywide problems. And yet we know there are so many good ideas, but none of them work unless we coordinate together. And there will be no coordination unless we civic organizations such as Temple Beth Am, such as One LA, such as other, you know, local entities apply pressure to public officials and hold them accountable for working together to address all aspects of this homelessness issue across the county and also to specifically address the mental health treatment options across the county. Things will not get better until we all work together. So I want to turn it over to Nancy. Thank you, Paula. Probably like most of you, When I'm faced with the world's problems, I feel depressed and powerless and actually paralyzed. What can I do as an individual? For me, the antidote to those feelings is organizing with others. In our original um, title, it said, if not now, when? But it should also say, if not me, then who? So there are several things that you can do that will make a difference. If you'd like, you can participate in more research actions with us. We're working on setting up a meeting with Jonathan Sharon, who is the director of the County Department of Mental Health. That's a really, sounds like a really interesting one. And then also, you can be one of 500 people who will come together on May 15th in what we call a candidate accountability action. We'll be asking the candidates for this next election to meet with this large group from across L.A. County. We don't allow them to make stump speeches, but we present moving stories to them about the issues we care about. And then we ask them to respond. And most importantly, we ask them to meet with us in the weeks after they become the mayor or their council member, supervisor or whatever, to meet with a smaller group to continue our discussions and our relationship. And I can tell you from personal experience, there is power in being in that action with so many people from all across L.A. County. So keep your eyes open for more information about the location and the time, but it probably will be that Sunday afternoon on May 15th. So if you know already that you'd be interested in participating, please put your email in the chat. And then if anyone has any questions, while remembering that we are not content experts, um, we are more than happy to take questions now. Thank you, Tyson. If there are uh, no more questions, I want to thank everyone for listening and participating. I think Denise has her hand. Oh, sorry. Didn't see it. Denise? Um, Yeah, I was just wondering on the candidate accountability um, 
Are there any people who we know are coming or are there people who we know we're not reaching out to or like, how is that going to work? Who's are you talking for, about candidates? Or yeah. Yeah. Talking, yeah. Like, who, are, who are we targeting to be accountable? So we are uh, working on the major candidates for mayor. All of them? Sure. Well, not 27 of them or however. No, like, I think it's like five. <laughs> or no, I think, I think there are seven major ones. Yeah. That doesn't mean they'll all be there. We're inviting them, and we're going to get as many of them to show up as possible. Right. We right. we we offer that opportunity, and what happens? We have meetings with them ahead of time, so they know what's going to happen. They're not surprised. And last, uh, when we did this before the pandemic, um, it was very successful. People, you know, when they know they're going to be 500 people there from across all kinds of places. That's that's a constituency to talk with. Yeah. Is that going to be in person? Do we know yet, Nancy? Uh, we're, as far as we know, yes. Uh, it's We're still looking at a couple of places. Might be in person outdoors. That'd be good. Sounds fun. Yeah, it's very powerful. Okay, well, it, if that's it. Uh, I want to thank you all again, and you can find the email addresses for the core team often in the Shabbat Bulletin, in Kol Ha'am, and in the Shul directory, or I'm sure Ari would be happy to let you get him, uh, you know, connected with us. Definitely. Um, thank you, everybody. Thank you, everyone, for joining tonight. Um, this will hopefully be up on the Temple Beth Am YouTube page within 24 hours or less. Um, it will also be shared on the Temple Beth Am podcast. Um, so listen for all, all of your voices there. Um, and I hope you will join us next week for uh, some of our offerings for Pesach. And please do not hesitate to reach out if you have any questions. And thank you all again for joining tonight. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.